Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we're speaking with Dr. Yvonne McLean, a family physician in New York City, about the intersection of religion and abortion and how they are not mutually exclusive subjects. This topic is something that Stephanie and I have wanted to cover for some time since we often find ourselves at this intersection when we are pressed about anything abortion-related. So we're very excited to be talking to Dr. McLean today. And I do just want to make a quick plug. If y'all remember in our episode with Stasia Coleman and Lynette Cooper, Black Women Maternal Health, we talked about a conference that they'll be hosting. Well, because of COVID, it has been rescheduled, and we just want to let our listeners know that it has been rescheduled to August 17th, and it's now going to be a live online conference. There are CEUs available, and a few things they are going to cover include identifying how reproductive justice can be used as a framework for clinical practice, research, outreach, and community engagement, identifying services to better serve Black women in their community, and they'll also be discussing the data regarding maternal morbidity and mortalities and the disparities present in this data. So if you're interested in attending this conference, the easiest way to find it is just to Google Black Women's Maternal Health Conference, University of Iowa. It is within the Carver College of Medicine, but you can find it on their website and register for that very easily. Hi, Dr. McLean. So thank you so much for being our guest today. First, could you provide a little bit of details about your background? Yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm a family physician in New York. I practice in a full spectrum family medicine practice in a community clinic uh, here in the city. And I have been here now for about three years. I did a fellowship in reproductive health with the Reproductive Health Access Project and have stayed on. Before that, I was in the complete opposite, actually. I was in rural Massachusetts, uh, where I did my residency. And then as part of my fellowship here, I did a one-year leadership training with Physicians for Reproductive Health, which is how our worlds have come together. Yes, we especially love Physicians for Reproductive Health. Yes, definitely. So the other question that we always ask our guests is what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? I think that's, I have come two two ways of answering that question. Sort of what do I do? Why do I do what I do in the world and in my life? I think one of the things that I guide myself by is really facing any challenge that comes my way and not letting fear take that away from me. And whether that's anything from walking down the street versus taking on a a completely different challenge in my career. And as far as the care that I provide, really what informs that is the true belief that there are millions of people in this world that do not get the care they need and that uh, they deserve equitable, judgment-free, evidence-based care. And if I can be just a little part of that, uh, then I will do whatever I can to reach that. And I am originally from Colombia, and 
there. If you don't have the money to pay cash, you're not going to get the care that you need. And we don't live in that society here for many people, obviously for many others, it is still very true. But if I can be a part of that, then I, I, as I said, I will be present. I just love hearing people's answers to this question. It makes me so happy. Okay, so we, Yvonne and I had talked quite at length on a screener call and could nerd out on this all day long. So we're so excited to talk about this. And so you shared just a very brief background with us to begin with, but could you go a little bit deeper into your religious background and the messaging you received about abortion and religion growing up? The short answer to that is there was no conversation about abortion, right? Because to talk about it means that you have to acknowledge it. So as I mentioned, I am originally from Colombia and my entire family, very devout. I grew up going to church every day, or not, sorry, not every day, every every weekend. And when my aunt uh, wants to give us a gift for our birthday or for Christmas, the gift is to have a mass in our honor. So definitely that is the tradition I grew up in. I did my communion. I followed sort of the guidelines. I was a very well-behaved little girl. And part of that meant, yes, you, you know, nobody will engage in sexual intercourse before marriage. You know, everything is a sin. We just don't talk about certain things. Then we came to the U.S. <laughs> and I will say that I, I have lived in um, several different countries before coming to the U.S. So I came to the U.S. when I was 14, right, for eighth grade. And, and then things started changing. So I started having conversations with people that I thought I would never have. Or, and I, had, I started hearing things that I thought I would never hear. And so that's kind of where things began. And, and, and I think, you know, I remember having a conversation even with my own mother when I decided to continue a fellowship in reproductive health and, and become an abortion provider. And she said to me, I just want to understand why you're doing what you're doing. And I, and she said, you know, when I was 22 and I was pregnant and I had the choice, I never even considered having an abortion. And here you are, sort of my choice, and now you are performing abortions. And then I said, yes, mom, and don't we live in a beautiful world where I have the capacity to do that and to help others who can't, for whatever reason, continue, feel that they can't do so, and I am here for them. And so so that's sort of right. So even my mom, who is also in the United States, who has heard some of the things that I have heard, that that religious piece is very much there. And, and essentially, yeah, I'm not supposed to talk about it, definitely not supposed to practice it. But I think that hearing different people's stories along the way helped me really realize, no, this is something that is very much needed and something that I would like to be able to provide to my patients. And when it comes to that, I, and, and kind of bringing it all together, which is, I believe in providing equitable care to all patients. So that means I don't believe that only people who have the means to have an abortion quietly deserve to have one. And and I think that that in this society, unfortunately, and in, in, in our current state of events and political situation, um, Unfortunately, if you don't have a certain uh, socioeconomic background, if you don't have the right connections, if you're in the wrong state, you can't do it. 
do so. And, uh, and so that's kind of bringing it all together for me. That's kind of how it began. So I'm just curious, you mentioned that when you came to the US, you heard some different messaging. And I'm from a rural area as well. And the messaging I received is the same, like, and also Catholic, you no know, sex till marriage, all this stuff. So I'm just curious what messaging you heard that was here versus in other countries that created that kind of tipping point or changed your awareness or viewpoint on abortion? I think at the beginning, and as you can imagine, I was only 14 when I first got here. So clearly we weren't going straight into the, and how do you feel about abortions? But just slowly, you know, this idea that moms sat down with their daughters to talk about, you know, sex and what is sex and, and how can you do so safely if you're going to do so? And not only that you shouldn't have it. And then also listening to, you know, it should be something that both people who are involved in that uh, relationship should be responsible for, not just the woman, which was what the messaging I heard when I was little. Also then this idea of, yes, there are some people who actually may not want to get pregnant at all, who definitely want to get pregnant or who can't have be pregnant. And if they can't be pregnant or feel they can't be pregnant, then how can they deal with that, that situation? And that part of that is actually not continuing the pregnancy. And so those were the kinds of of messages and wording that I started to hear. And then it was, okay, so tell me more about the various options. And I think that was one of the biggest pieces, options. I didn't hear about options when I was younger. And that's today, one of the biggest things that I advocate for is options. So it doesn't matter. So if, if somebody comes to my practice and they are pregnant, I am there no matter what the circumstances are and what the decisions are for this patient. And so that includes either continuing the pregnancy or helping transition to, for, for adoption um, or then uh, terminating the pregnancy. And I think so for me, the tipping point, I would say, is when I was in Massachusetts, one of my patients who I had known for a couple of years she was pregnant. And so, you know, we talked about it, how she felt. And um, she said, you know, I, I don't think I can do this. Can you help me? And I couldn't, because I did not have the training to do so. And also for medication abortions, which I, I think a lot of people are providing now in certain settings, I couldn't do that either, because our clinic was also not providing those services. And so all along the way, I couldn't, I couldn't do that for her. And it was that sort of at that moment that I said, here are the various options. Oh, but wait, I can only provide these two, but I can't help you with this one. And so that's kind of when I realized that I needed further training to be able to, to provide that care and to truly be there under all, all circumstances. So you have this patient and you realize I want to get more practice um, or skills to be able to provide abortions. How did you sort of navigate that with, you know, there's one, there's kind of this one way like, oh, I'm, I'm pro-choice or I won't judge my patients for having an abortion or I believe they should have all options to actually providing an abortion. Can you talk about sort of how you navigated that with your spirituality and your upbringing? So I think it was never a hard choice, mainly because at the essence of it all is 
how can you take care of your neighbor, right? And how can you sort of love thy neighbor as thyself? And and I think that that growing up and, and still in a lot of societies, it is a very narrow definition. And I think for me, all these experiences just helped me to just widen that definition. And so, for instance, this patient, I could see her her suffering in that she wasn't prepared physically, emotionally, financially, any of these things. And that was her suffering. And my capacity to help that person was to help her with what she was requesting, which was something like an abortion. And so I think often this is, is tricky because, you know, whenever I hear people who are not advocates of abortion or abortion care or contraception, the focus is always on, but you're, you're, you're killing someone, you're killing a human. And I think we need to really sort of broaden that because when we think about First of all, I'm not even going to go into the definition of when does does life begin and all of it. That's a totally, I mean, that's a podcast in and of itself. But I think that often what happens is that we forget that you're also talking about the person in front of you and that what is that person going to encounter? What is that person encountering in that moment? And how are they going to suffer? How are they going to, like, how is, I mean, for some individuals, unfortunately, they do take their lives because they, became pregnant and their religion doesn't allow them to have something like termination of, of, of their pregnancy. And that's under the category of suffering. And those are things that I also pay attention to. So I think the issue I also have is that, that a lot of times we'll sit and we'll talk about how we need to protect a life and we'll protect the fetus, but we won't protect the person who's having this pregnancy. So now in sort of the spirit of, of the various protests that are going on, I saw a very, very poignant photograph and it was somebody who was pregnant and said, if you're fighting this much to protect the fetus, then make sure that you fight this much to protect the life of my child once he is a grown up." And that was an incredible, incredible thing because I think once we get away from the rhetoric of pro-life, pro-choice, once we get away from all of that, we're talking about human beings, and that is the crux. So if you're going to truly be that passionate <laughs> about making sure that you, you, you like save a, a fetus, then, then yes, why are we not trying to save all the individuals that are um, dying at the hands of police, that are are not getting the appropriate health care, that are not having the appropriate just humanitarian uh, interaction. So so I, I again, I see that as kind of a discrepancy within the religious piece that I try to kind of equalize by saying, okay, like so then let's see it all on the same page. And I think an example of that is Planned Parenthood and there are often protests in front of the centers, as we know. And one of the more recent ones, protesters were actually tripping the volunteers who were coming into the clinic. They were shouting things like, yeah, you're going to die too. You know, I hope you die too. This kind of sort of vitrolic <laughs> speech that if we're truly Christian or Catholic or Jewish or whatever your faith is, but if you're steeped in spirituality and religion, 
these are also things that we shouldn't wish upon our brother or our sister, right? Or anyone. So, so I think that that's kind of how, for me, it was less of a dichotomy and more of bringing the worlds together and not seeing that discrepancy. 100% to everything you said. And since it's a podcast, people can't see me, but I was basically a bobblehead <laughs> nodding yes to everything you're saying because I see all of this. And I recently had a post too talking about when we weaponize our quote unquote, this attainable moral high ground. And a lot of time people use religion to create this quote unquote, moral attainable high ground and, and they use it to oppress other people. And, and it just doesn't make sense to me because I am also still very spiritual and, and I don't understand how you can do that and use it as a means to hurt other people. And yes, you said it beautifully. <laughs> yeah. No, and I will also say I, and you know, and you and I talked about this, which was, my sort of journey through medicine has been anything but a, a straight shot. And I've definitely had some challenges along the way. I'm sure I will continue to have them. And really, the reason I am here is because that higher power um, has helped me through it. And I know that without a doubt. And, uh, and I've had a lot of family members who have prayed for individual tests. In individual scenarios, you know. So, so I think there was definitely once a time that I that I thought, no, 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 this is just me doing it. But I, there have just been so many moments, and so I think that again, it's not an either or. And I think just at a personal level, I could feel that and sense that. And then I, you know, and and, and the story that I also mentioned to you, which was the very first time I did a solo shift and all sorts of challenges and issues came up and somehow they they just they kind of resolved themselves as we went along it could have been completely catastrophic and it wasn't and I I came out and I thought okay well that was interesting I feel a little I, I don't even know how I feel and I and I walked out and 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 I was sort of in a daze and I looked up and somebody had the cross the, the ash cross from from ash Wednesday and and I just sort of smiled and said oh this makes total sense and it just kind of all brought it together because that was that was my Ash Wednesday experience, right? That was that moment. And it, and it just kind of really helped me to really believe even more, I guess, in this idea of, yeah, no, there's definitely somebody watching me, but the person or, or entity or deity or whatever is actually okay with what I'm doing. And, and, and it all came to be. In your journey through discovering how you feel about abortion and providing abortion, have you read like scholarly or religious works about abortion? And are there any ones that come to mind that were really meaningful to you? It's so funny that you asked that question because one of the things that I said to Nicole is, if you want somebody to quote scripture, I'm not your gal. <laughs> What I will say is this. I mean, I think that I have had enough teachings throughout my life around religion and sort of what one should and shouldn't do that I, I should preface all of this by saying Catholic faith, right? Because there are many religions, there are many faiths, there are very many traditions that do not sort of talk about the process of life in the same way in Judaism a life is formed when they take their first, first breath, right? As opposed to many Christian faiths where the minute the sperm and the egg come together, boom, that is 
that is a life form, right? So, so I will say that I, so off the top of my head, I do not, because I think I've probably avoided those texts in the sense of, again, going back to, it wasn't what the text said, but what sort of the, what my teachings were for humanity and care. And, and so that was what I focused on, not so much on, on the scripture. And, but I will say that my mom definitely quoted that at some point. If she was here, she could like just you know show me. But but I do I, I have heard scholars though in uh, this topic and sort of how they themselves have grappled with this issue. And I think that the interesting piece is that everyone takes a different route. And I think that what I will say to those who are grappling with this decision is that you have to really go within and and sort of what is what is important to you what do you value what are the things that you can accept what are the things that you can't accept about doing this work right and and having these conversations uh, because at the end of the day you also need to be able to get up in the morning and face the world and the world will be rough and the world will come your way and so it's not a one size fits all discussion and and so i think that 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 would be part of it. So regardless of of your faith, uh, that that is number one. And then number two, I think it's what of it is so much what society says versus what the teachings truly are. And so again, I think if the teachings are saying, you know, be kind to each other, then why would we be kind in one scenario but not in another scenario? If the right, if the teachings say above all, God, who we're supposed to be answering to, then why am I going to answer to somebody else, right? So so those are the kinds of things that I think anybody who is religious, and even I would say even those who aren't religious and who aren't spiritual, it's good. It's a good practice because ultimately there are many, many times where I will be, you know, performing a procedure, we're done with a procedure, and then the patient turns around and says, I can't believe I'm in this situation. I thought I would never. And, and so then how do you answer that, right? And how do you help that individual because it's not an easy answer and it's not an easy situation for them at all and it's not an issue decision for them to make and so how do you meet that individual as well and there will also be patients who want to pray and so you know I have prayed with my patients or I've remained silent for them and so I think that that's a very key piece as well. So first of all, I love those questions that you pose for people to think about. So I just want to say that I think those are super helpful, breaking it down. And then if we could kind of delve into that last piece that you talked about, about, you know, meeting the patient, having that patient in front of you who says, I never thought I would do this or praying. Can you talk about like specifically what you would, what you had said or what you would say to a patient who says, I never thought I would do this or I never thought I would have to, or that type of thing. So what I usually say, cause I'm thinking just even, you know, a few days ago when, when this happened and I said, you know, I, I know it wasn't an issue, an easy decision for you. It's not an easy decision for anyone. And you made the decision that was best for you at this time. And it doesn't mean that in the future, you can't have a perfectly healthy pregnancy that you and continue and you bring a child in this world. But in this moment, this was the part that you needed. And, you know, if you want me to pray with you, I will. If you want me to discuss it more, I will. If you want to talk to a social worker, we can do that. It's up to you 
to just, I will be here. Just let me know. And then one patient actually went a step further and said, how do you do what you do? <laughs> so, so that was, so when you asked me that question today, I was like, oh yeah, yeah. I just answered that, um, you know, <laughs> a little bit ago. So, so yeah, I think it's important because it's not, it's not about saying, you know, I don't know why, or, or yeah, you made the wrong decision or, or how could you, or, right. I mean, when, when you have individuals in front of you, they're at their most vulnerable. And so, and they're already giving themselves the worst possible criticism that anybody can give them. And so I don't necessarily need to make them feel like the happiest person in the world, but I also don't need to make them feel like they're the worst person in the world. And so I kind of try to to use wordings that isn't definitely isn't fake because it just depends on the situation and, and what my response is, but also that isn't too weighted in one or the other and just is kind of neutral and, and helps them to just grapple with what, what just occurred. And I think you make a good point. One of the things that always bothers me is that people think that people who get an abortion didn't think about this or they do this willy nilly and they haven't thought through and considered and all these things, that is always something that just really bothers me at a deep level to think that this is a decision that people make lightly. And so I appreciate you speaking to that, that these are folks at their most vulnerable. I think also, I mean, statistically, most people who become pregnant are are in some form of birth control. And so it's not that they're not, uh, quote unquote, being careful. Many are. And then again, also there are, and so there are a lot of people who are not on birth control because of the years long of, of a tradition uh, in this country and many countries around the world of forced sterilizations and of practicing various research on individuals of color and and without consent. So so there's definitely a lot of that that goes into background, but yeah, I think people believe that it's just if they only took care of themselves, then they wouldn't be in this predicament. And that is I think a myth that definitely needs to be broken down because it's it's not that it's not true. And the flip side of that is that there are also a lot of individuals who can't actually be on any form of birth control because either medical reasons, or they don't get it covered by the employer, or they, right, they, they're in situations where they can't actually have that form of birth control. So I'm thinking, for example, if you are in a shelter, it's, and, and you're having to move from shelter to shelter, you may not always know where your birth control pills are right? And, or you may not be able to have them right there because you're supposed to have all your things in a different place. So, I mean, I think, I think part of all of this discussion really also means that we cannot judge others the way that I think a lot of people do. And so I have privilege. I'm a physician. I am in certain settings. That privilege does not transfer to everybody. And I think to not think of all the different life uh, circumstances that people have is really a difficult piece when we talk about this because we are judging people based on information that we don't have. Everyone has completely different circumstances and we need to be able to leave space for that. And that's part of also being a spiritual religious individual is that we're not supposed to be doing that. 
And so so we need to practice that a, a little more rather than just preaching it. And I agree. And what's hard is I find it so interesting how people can just distill this down to, well, you're killing a baby. And like, that's, you know, like narrowly how it's seen without recognizing how it's nested in so many complex, I mean, you hit on some like, what birth control is available? Can you take this history of reproductive coercion or forced sterilization? And, you know, then you can even look at even more structures and, and I can't, and, and I don't think you can either, you know, untangle all of that. Like that's all together. And so it, it's hard yeah, when it's like, wow, it's so interesting how you can just see it, the singular issue and not recognize the complexity. And I mean, so many times I've seen it in my research, you know, they say how uh, I, so I've researched what is responsible sexual behavior? What does that actually mean? And how does that, what do women actually conceive as responsible sexual behavior? And spoiler alert, how women view it and how the literature views it, it's not the same. But what's interesting is the literature often views, you know, they try to quantify responsible versus irresponsible behavior. And how irresponsible behavior is often quantified is by abortion. So like in so facto having abortion makes you irresponsible and, or, you know, or getting an STI makes you irresponsible. And so becomes this dichotomous outlook. And what was interesting is when we were interviewing or when it was college women and abortion became an actually a responsible choice because they were protecting their education goals and so it's interesting how nuanced and complex even just looking at you know responsibility and how that's so often tied to abortion and how yeah to be irresponsible is to have one and then the flip side of is then people say well that it's almost like a punishment like you should have that baby like you did this this is now like the outcome you have to accept that and it's like becomes this punishment. And so it, it's interesting to try and grapple like all that language when it's nested in something so complex. Right. And, and I think, you know, you mentioned, it, it, there's, I mean, I see it, this cycle, right, of so especially, I mean, if we're talking specifically about Catholicism, so you, you go through your childhood, your adolescence, presumably, either not openly talking about sex and sexual intercourse and, and all its ramifications. So you go through through that, then you go through the stage of, okay, if I do it, it's a sin, but you're still not learning anything about how do you protect yourself? How can you, right? Like, so, and then you go through, okay, so what, if I am going to protect myself, that's also a sin because contraception is looked at as a sin. And then where do I get it? Then, so if you don't get the right contraception and you don't protect yourself, then you have a pregnancy, but then you also can't you know have an abortion because that's also a sin but guess what if you actually have that pregnancy then you're not going to be supported because it's a sin to have a pregnancy out of wedlock and all the various expletives and adjectives that come to that individual who have that pregnancy and then god forbid if you end up needing some public assistance because your family, your friends, and everybody else turn their back on you, then, well, this is what everybody does, and they just want more money from the government. And also, as you said, spoiler alert, it turns out that having more kids doesn't actually give you more money from the government. So that's not what, right? Because then the next the next part of this conversation is, well, 
they just have kids because they want more money, right? So like, so it's just, so where do we end that cycle? Like how, how does an individual have an option to get off that rotating wheel of judgment and powerlessness and right? Like where, where do we stop the madness? And so when I see it in that context, then I think that's why I'm like, yeah, no, I am exactly where I am and where I need to be because it, it just, that's the piece. And so now thinking about, you know, my nieces, I can't have these conversations with my nieces because they're in a different situation, right? They're, and, and they're, and they're steeped in, in religion and whatever, but I will find a way to discuss things about autonomy and about decision-making and what are, you know, what are some of the choices? And they will always have Auntie Yvonne to talk to, which I must say my cousin's already scared to death by that, about that, but, but I, right, because it's so important to be able to, to have that. Um, otherwise, we just find ourselves trapped and it's just a, a trapping circle um, that we can't get off of. All these things that you're talking about, I, I want to say that even if you do work in a family planning clinic and even if you do provide abortions, you may also be sort of doing these these communication habits of, of stigmatization, of judgment, because I have seen that a lot. So I just want to say that and say, you know, if you're listening, just know that you might not be immune to what Yvonne is saying just because you provide abortions. Oh, absolutely. Just again, a couple of days ago, somebody, I was talking to somebody in an unknown clinic (laughs) and she said, you know, the patient walked out and she said, oh, there she goes to go ahead and get pregnant again and we'll see her next month. And I turned around and I said, really? That's, that's what, that's what you say? And she's like, well, you know, I mean, she's just, you know, it's kind of like a revolving door. And I, and I thought, wait, I'm sorry, but you, you're, you work here, you're doing this this what so and then and then I said but I actually turned around and said you know what I don't I don't care what she's here I don't care what brought her here I am here to provide the service that she needs and if she needs it multiple times I will be here and that sort of shut this person up but I just was in such awe of what was happening but also not in such awe because I have heard it before and I think that we sometimes can be very judgmental in this field, as you mentioned. And we definitely always have to sort of check our language, our privilege, our judgment, because I think there are individuals who feel like, well, I'm just doing this because if I don't do this, then we'll just have a ton more, you know, children out of wedlock, uh, which is also not really the way to go. But I think as a field, we've moved way to the other side. And, and there's definitely more information about you know, trauma-informed care and, you know, really bringing the reproductive justice framework into every encounter and how do we not re-traumatize our, our patients when they're having, whether it's a procedure or medication abortion or contraception, when we're having just these conversations. So we've definitely moved that along, but there's still a lot of work to do. And uh, I will just say that for those of you that, that don't know what reproductive justice is, that it's a phrase that was coined in, in 1994 uh, by a group of African-American women in response to sort of the, the dearth of, of care services and, and, and sort of reproductive options for uh, women of color. And, and really the essence is that you have the right to have a pregnancy, to not have a pregnancy, or to raise that pregnancy in a safe space and with support. And so even 
just the current environment around the protests and, and police brutality, it, that's also part of reproductive justice. Because again, you have a baby and then you want to raise this child, but you are not often in a setting that can help you raise this child in a healthy and supportive way. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And just to build on that too, if reproductive justice is a new concept for our listeners, we have a couple of great episodes. We have one that's a grassroots perspective on reproductive justice where we actually talk with Tony Bon Leonard, who is one of the women who coined that term, a phenomenal podcast. And we also talk a lot about the intersection of abortion and religion and her experience with that. So absolutely would push folks to check that one out after this one. We also have reproductive justice from a medical perspective. And so we do have two episodes on that. And then you had mentioned trauma-informed care. And if there are folks who are listening and are not familiar with that concept either, we actually have two episodes on that. One where we talk with Dr. Megan Gerber about providing trauma-informed care telehealth or like synchronous video So, you know, from like the telehealth aspect, and then we do have where we talk with Allison Tinker about providing trauma-informed care in general. So if those are new concepts to our listeners, feel free to look in our, look in the library because we have some ones just about those as well and and would fit very nicely with the conversation that we're having right now. So want to make a quick plug for those. Yeah, I know. That sounds great. I'll be listening to those. <laughs> Definitely one on Tony Bon Leonard. I think Stephanie and I sat there with our mouths open the whole time and we're just like, whoa, <laughs> it's really powerful. I've actually had the, the the honor really of working with, with Tony directly and, and actually doing a couple of sessions. Um, yeah, she's amazing. She is absolutely amazing. Yeah. And she is a religious scholar mm-hmm. as well. So, it you know, she offers kind of that you know, like where you were saying you can't quote scripture. She has some some scripture in her in her podcast episode that was, you know, I don't really know that stuff, but <laughs> I thought it was really informative. It was. And I think this is also a great perspective to have you like as a practitioner and doing this in your life every day and how you embrace both and and I'm assuming this isn't mutually exclusive for you. Like you don't, you're not like a spiritual person one day and then a provider the other day and you really blend the two. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I still pray every day. I still have sort of my, my little moments and I, you know, sometimes I feel like, like a, a teenage uh, person where I'm like, but how could this be happening when I look at the world and, and all the things, right, that are going on? And I'm like, where are you? What, why, why aren't you here? Why aren't you inter- interjecting in these situations? And, you know, and then the next day I'm like, but thank you for, you know, all the things. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I definitely still have a spiritual practice. I don't always go to mass, but if I'm with my family, I definitely do. That is not an option and, and, and that's okay. And I, I gladly do it, but I definitely have a spiritual practice. And I, yeah, I mean, as I said, I went from that period of sort of pushing away religion and thinking, well, if you're not fitting into all the other things that are going on in my life, then I can't be a part of it to really saying, oh, no, no, this is, this is, this is all together. This does not have to be a dichotomous picture. I can be a spiritual person and also um, an abortion provider and be able to have my faith and my religious practice. And I think that I am a better person for it because I think with one without the other, I think would be hard for me. And just to, to be clear, I, I don't, I'm not referencing God specifically because I know that there are a lot of listeners who 
may hear God and just cringe. So that's why I'm not trying to be vague. I definitely know who I pray to, but that's kind of why I'm, I'm sort of using a little bit more inclusive language. And I will say the same thing about um, when I talk about my patients and I and I sometimes use women, sometimes I use individuals, because we also know that it's not just cisgendered women and so who get pregnant or who need contraception. And so that's why I use um, more of that, that sort of open language. And I don't know if you feel this way, but I definitely would say that I had an existential crisis, grew up Catholic, and at some point kind of pushed it away. But I feel like have I mean, and it's not comfortable to go through this work of like questioning everything you've grown up believing and everybody around you believes and being in that space. But in some ways, I feel like having had that time to really step back and have a critical analysis and and recognize what parts am I actively or passively engaging in due to what actually aligns with my beliefs versus what is tradition. And I think having gone through that challenge, I've probably come out more spiritual at the end and have a clearer sense of what my purpose is and, you know, the design of my life and all these things. And so I think, and I'm not to say like, oh, if you go to church, like you're not critical and not really thinking about stuff, but I think there is some space to be had when you do step back and, and really look at who are you and how do your personal values align with all these other things? And, and it is uncomfortable and you'll probably attest that it's not comfortable to go through that. But I think at the end of the day, I'm probably more spiritual and more connected or recognize things than I did before when I was just going to church every Sunday to go to church. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I probably, I think I, I know more about the church now than I did back then for sure. <laughs> Um, and, and this is sort of a non sequitur, but I, I just also just remembered when you asked me, what was the turning point? And I also, another piece that really does come to mind is, you know, church and sexual abuse of children, you know, and I just sort of thought, you know, if I practice a religion that seems to turn a blind eye sometimes to things like child abuse, why would I feel guilty about being able to help an individual that does not want to continue a pregnancy? Why would somebody want to kill me because of doing that, but be okay and want to forgive the individual that, you know, for five years raped their daughter? Why that discrepancy? Like, why do we, why do we live in that society? And so I think that that was also a huge turning point for me. I mean, I think that was a turning point for me as far as like my change in, in how I viewed things. And then the, the example that I gave of my patient was just a turning point of, do I need to get more education? Which at that point I was, over. <laughs> but that was what kind of gave me the, the, the push to, to get more education. But, but yeah, I mean, I think that those are the things that I think anybody should really think about before casting that first stone is how do you treat one situation or even one individual? Because again, do you treat you know, a certain person one way, but then the other, you treat them differently. And those are not equitable. And, and, and they're not equitable in the eyes of God if we're truly following scripture. So anyway, that's a little side note that I just remembered uh, that I thought it was important. <laughs> no, thank you. Because, you know, I am not Catholic, unlike 
you both, but I grew up in St. Louis, which is very Catholic city. So many of my friends are Catholic or what they joke as recovering Catholics. Um, And I think that was a big turning point for a lot of them once they reached adulthood was seeing the abuse and how to sort of rectify their beliefs and their tradition and then what the church was doing about that. And I I think that is a really hard, like Nicole said, a really hard journey too, because I don't know, I've always seen it because I'm outside of it probably, but I always see that Catholics as more of like this community. I mean, probably all churches, but that you're sort of you know, it's almost like an ethnicity in a way, like I'm a Catholic, even though I don't believe in anything that they represent, Um, you know, but, but I'm going to go to mass and I'm going to do Lent and I'm going to, you know, do communion. It's like you read my mind. So I think that, but I think that's really hard to like, I am Catholic, but I don't always agree. And I, where like I think a lot of people are like you have to agree with this all you're either with us or you're against us so I appreciate you kind of talking about how you work within and outside of that I too was that yeah that person who I remember a friend of mine uh, you know she came out uh, as a lesbian and and she but she was definitely very devout and still went to church every Sunday and and I remember having a conversation with her of like, what, but why would you go to a church that basically says that, that you're a sin? And she said, well, because I don't go for the people. I go for the message and the, the, to listen to what, what the message from, from the Bible and from God is. And so I don't sort of get boiled down in, in, in this, you know, the, the minutia of whatever people's interpretation is. I kind of go and I listen and I, and I, believe in my own and that's what keeps me going and then and then she said and then ultimately I will find a church that is more open to to queer uh individuals and I will join that one so that was an interesting piece and I think uh that is probably one of the reasons it still has engaged is because I it, it took sort of somebody else to say like no 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 you you also don't have to sort of choose one or the other right you don't have to choose your spirituality and your your soul with something that you do on a daily basis right so so it was yeah it was an interesting piece and and I I, yeah so I I am still saying I am Catholic yes (laughs) no I appreciate that and that kind of leads into our next question is then what advice would you have for our listeners that maybe find themselves under the pressure of religion when discussing or providing abortion care do you have any more words of wisdom things to think about I think Number one is really sort of, as I mentioned before, that that individual sort of self-evaluation of what is important, what can you live with, what can you live without. Number two is really finding support because any abortion provider will need support. Uh, But in addition to that, if you're an abortion provider who is also religious and you're going to have this piece, you need support from your community, from your family, from others who are in a similar situation. I think three is really asking questions where you work as far as are like work-wise, are they going to be supporting me so that the, uh, that you don't have to fight two battles at once? 
And I think three is really being able to to have these discussions and, and to, to, yeah, to go to some sessions to listen to others, uh, to listen to Tony's podcast, you know, those sort of things, because it does help you just learn the language itself as well. Because I, I think, you know, one thing is just whatever emotions are coming out and whatever you have in, in your mind, and another is to be able to explain it to others in a way that they can understand that you feel good about that. Right. And so and so sometimes that that takes learning as well. I do a lot of anti-racism workshops and and that that was also a learning curve. Just because I happen to be a person of color doesn't mean that I automatically was a scholar in 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 all the the political traditions and, and everything. I also had to learn about it so that then I could both inform myself make my own choices, but then also inform others. So I, those would be the, the pieces that I would encourage others to do. So we have, I think this is our first listener question. So congrats for being the first <laughs> guest to get one. So this kind of goes into advice and related to religion in a family planning clinic. So the listener, I will just read it. She says, I work in public health in Illinois with a focus on STIs and family planning. This position was previously held by a provider that worked for a Catholic organization, and her contract with them prohibited her from discussing contraception and abortion. The director of our department is currently adamant that we not discuss abortions. She says she has no affiliation with the Catholic organization. I was told that all we are able to do is give the patient a paper with a list of phone numbers. We are not to promote aftercare if they have an abortion, not even to get them started on contraception. Also, we currently do not have Title X funding, but I was told that due to Trump's rules, we cannot promote or discuss abortions. My question is, how do I approach this in a respectful manner to help the director see the importance of providing accurate education and follow-up so patients can receive proper care and hopefully won't have to be faced with this decision again? That is definitely a great question, and it does kind of come tie into what we were just talking about. And I, I do a lot of advocacy work around abortion care. And, and the very first rule is find the common ground, right? Find that common ground between you and uh, the person or the people that you're working with and that you're, you're talking to. So in this case, for me, it seems really obvious that the common ground is how can we ensure that the patient is safe, right? So if you can start discussing that and what the role of that institution is in, in individual healthcare. I think that is a good starting point and a good jumping off point. So even asking the question, so what, you know, what has been the tradition here and why do you feel that we can't continue to, to provide certain services, right? Sort of asking for soliciting what the, the viewpoint is of, of the supervisor, right? Because if, especially if, that individual isn't the one that had the contract or the one that that it has a Catholic affiliation. Like so, then what is what is the the reason, right? And so, first, understanding that. Second, yes, coming from a point of if our goal is to provide the best care that we can to our patients, the best care that we can means also ensuring that they because when you mentioned no aftercare after abortion. That's assuming that the abortion went well, that everything was fine. But what if it didn't? 
So what if that individual is having some bleeding? What if the individual didn't have a complete abortion? So so are we not providing any care for that either, right? And which means that then that individual could have many more complications. So even just more than just contraception, I think those are kind of some of the questions and the conversations to start off with, staying away from and then we have to provide this service here, right? So we stay away from that. And we stay, and at this point, we're not even talking about, you know, do we believe in the abortion? Do we not? It's more about what is, what is central to this individual's health and how can we ensure that they are safe? Now, the list is sort of the basic, the basic thing that we can do, right? And that's at least it is something that can be provided. But how can we then make sure that we do prevention? So then it could be a conversation around prevention and how can we make sure that individuals aren't faced with that decision. So then how can we help them to do that? And then maybe that conversation about prevention then leads into things like contraception, but maybe not. And maybe there's other forms or there's institutions or conversations that can be had. So I think start really broad, but starting with A, why does this person feel so strongly? B, what what are the shared values? And then C, how can you tackle both prevention aftercare to make sure that the individual is safe without actually providing something like the abortion itself. Because also, let's face it, with that list of phone numbers, that doesn't really tell us much, right? Because we're not really sure where they're going to go. We're not sure about the care that they're going to get. So if this individual is truly interested in caring for the patient, then that's another step and that's another conversation to have. If, if you're going to provide a list and that's all you're going to do, then at least make sure that services are going to be appropriate for your patients. So that's that's kind of how I would start those conversations. And it might be not a one-time, but a two-time or a three-time conversation. And it might be, you know, that the first thing you can agree on is making sure that that list is, is something that, that patients can truly utilize. Then maybe the next is, okay, so somebody comes in and they're having an extra bleed because they had an abortion. So then maybe let's just, can we make sure that we can at least care for them, right? So you have to sort of start the piecemealing, especially if you're, you're faced with so much, the no in that statement, right? That, so if, you're, if that you have so much opposition, then I think starting with a very broad definition and then starting with baby steps, I think that's how I would approach that. Thank you for answering that question. I think that feedback was really helpful I've kind of been trying to take that approach even on Facebook with people's comments, either on abortion or race or whatever, um, finding that, you know, asking some questions and finding that common ground, because I think that's sort of the best place to start changing minds. One of the things I think that I have really struggled with in practice in a variety of settings is, is kind of similar in that all these Catholic healthcare organizations who restrict sterilization procedures. They obviously don't do abortion. Some of them don't even talk about contraception and, you know, trying to navigate that as someone who totally disagrees morally with those things. I don't know, you know, this is kind of an off-the-cuff question, but I don't know if you have any experience working for or with or against <laughs> an organization who restricts those things and how you've navigated that. Yes and no. I think I have been in an organization that wasn't as open about 
these sort of things. And so they, you know, they didn't provide uh, abortion care. When we thought talked about maybe bringing abortion services to the clinic, the community would have re- responded in a negative way. So they were scared of that. But at the same time, they didn't completely sort of toss me to the curve when I said, well, I want more training, right? So, and I, I would like to go on and get more training. So, so I haven't been faced with that complete, just, you know, against the, the wall kind of mentality. However, there were some of my coworkers who didn't agree with it. And so sort of agreed to disagree, but, but they would sort of say like, yeah, yeah, there's this patient. I think you probably want to talk to them because I, you know, there's just some topics that are more up your alley. And so I would, immediately know what that meant and I would kind of chime in. So I think in those situations it's more about sort of knowing who your allies are and, and who they aren't and and I think establishing a different arena of conversation so that you can meet on a different ground but but still work together or be in that setting together. And so there might be some comments that I will make in certain settings that I won't in others because I know that that the individual isn't going to to really appreciate that. And they in turn will do the same, but also knowing that as far as our work, our careers and what we're there to do, which is to care for our patients. I think that keeping that in mind, that's why we can also work together. And why I think that patient is your patient, you should be able to continue and provide. I also don't believe that they have to, right? And as long as they are able to, to then let me know, then I can step in. And I think that that's I, at one of the pieces that we, I guess we haven't discussed is sort of the flip side of all of this. If, if you have a provider who doesn't believe in contraception or abortion care or any of the things that you mentioned uh, and is in an institution where this happens. And so I think I would say the same things that I said earlier regarding what are the things that you can do? What are the things that you can't? But at the, at the crux of it all is then really ensuring that that human, that human who comes through your door and is asking for services that that human is safe and that you are able to then sort of transition that individual to somebody else who, who can do it. And so I don't even know at this point if I answered your question, but 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 that's that's kind of what I would say because I, I also don't believe that truly if you're if you're truly, truly steeped in faith and, and these are things that you hold true to you, uh, I, I I don't think you sh- you need to necessarily absolutely go against your own free will, but I think that part of that, again, that love thy neighbor after thyself is make sure that your neighbor is safe and is going to get the care that they need. And so to be able to, to transition and whether it's a list, whatever it is, but like be, really making sure that, that it's true care and not just a way for you to get rid of that individual and not really know uh, what's going on or be accountable. You kind of talked about how you feel like as a provider or other providers, not you specifically, but can say I'm not going to do X, Y, Z because of my religion. One of the issues I think that I've noticed when providers have said that, because I have worked with providers who won't prescribe birth control, obviously won't do abortions or even talk about them. But, you know, not only does that create an issue of the patient having to go elsewhere, which can be an issue of access and time and money, but also just putting sort of a stigma on that. So if you're saying, well, I don't think you're immoral, basically, this is my religion and morality, and it goes against 
what you're doing. So do you have like any advice for providers who might be listening who do feel like that they wouldn't want to prescribe birth control or do or emergency contraception is a good example or even abortion on how to sort of say these these things like I'm not going to do that without or lessening the stigma I guess <laughs> yeah and and I'll also say that I make that statement so at the base of it all as well is the Hippocratic oath right and so just so just as I have in the past cared for individuals who have done atrocious things and are in prison for atrocious things not just you know, it wasn't it wasn't a question of why they were there, but I cared for them because that was my role as a physician. I, in my heart, believe that that's the same thing for a provider who doesn't believe in abortion or contraception or, or emergency birth control. It is our Hippocratic Oath, and I do believe that things like abortion, contraception, and and, and emergency birth control are all part of healthcare, not sort of an elective thing. It's part of healthcare. So at the crux of it, I, I believe that. However, because I also understand that we can't force people to do things that they don't want to, and because I also don't want to be a hypocrite, really, of to say like, well, you have to do this, even if you don't believe in it, but then don't judge those who do, right? Like, I, I don't believe in that either. Then I think the way to discuss it is to say, hey, you know what? I have somebody who is better uh, suited for this discussion or who has more experience in, you know, the, the different birth control options and would have a better conversation with you. Or I am not sure if that particular birth control option is the best one. And so, and I don't know, so I will have somebody come to you who can. So it's really not that hard, it turns out, um, because we do that all the time with different scenarios, right? Like if somebody comes in for diabetes and is asking for one of the newer ones and you have no idea, you're going to say either, you know what? I don't know about that. Let me look it up and get back to you. Or let me talk to my colleague who knows something and then I'll, I'll be able to prescribe that. Or I'm not sure if that that's going to make another one of your, you know, medical problems worse. So, so we do that anyway, day to day. Those kind of conversations are had. And so I think there are ways to transition without judgment, without, you know, a red flag for the patient, without the patient feeling like, well, now you're not going to, you know, you're not going to help me. And and unless you're a solo practitioner, nine times out of 10, there will be somebody else who can do that prescription, who can give that kind of advice. And even if you are a solo practitioner, then then have the number for somebody who that patient can call and who can send that prescription and who can have that conversation. So again, not not forcing you to do something that you don't want to or have a conversation that you don't want to, but to, to have those outlets, just like you would do a referral to anybody else, to have that language that can help. So yeah, I guess that's what I would say. Yeah, I think that's really great. And I could see if I were a patient in that situation, how differently I would feel if you said, hey, yeah, I, I don't know where someone could get, have this really great discussion with you versus I don't do that because of my moral or religious or whatever beliefs and you're doing this behavior. I think that's a great way to go about it. And you're right. You do run into situations where you don't know everything about it and it wouldn't be weird right. or come off as judgmental. Right. 
And even if, and you know, I mean, I think a lot of times, even if patients did think, well, well, that's weird. As long as there's like a quick follow-up, like then, then it's like, okay, well, that's weird, but, but I'm still getting the care that I need, right? It's just not from that individual and no further discussion or self-blame or judgment is, is placed on that situation. Thank you. I wish I would have thought about that before in my previous work because I would frequently have to tell the patients like, oh, well, don't see this doctor because she won't do that because she's extreme Catholic or, you know, I don't know what I said, but it's against her religion or, and then, you know, that would obviously be met with some anger. Like, then why is she an OBGYN or, which is, you know, is a, is an excellent question that I don't have an answer for. (laughs) Yep. Um, Yep, That's also a completely different discussion. I could sit here and have for like three hours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could sit with you. I was just telling Nicole that when you got up, I could sit with and talk to you for probably the whole day, but (laughs) it probably wouldn't, it would be nice, but (laughs) I don't know know if it would lead to any change in the world. (laughs) And I know we're getting down on time. I want to ask one more quick question and then we'll do our little wrap up question. So, so say you're a provider who says, Hey, why don't you talk to someone else? But what is a way that we can then keep folks safe? Then say it's, you know, four weeks before they can get into this provider and they need birth control. Like how can then you as a provider bridge that or keep someone safe during that time that they're transitioning to a new provider? If I'm, witnessing the situation, then so oftentimes we'll, we'll provide like one pack of something right for until the next appointment or we'll, we'll send emergency birth control until they get their next appointment. So that if I'm, if I'm an outsider, then I could easily do that. But if you happen to be the one that's doing the referral, I mean, I think again, number one, the most important thing is really have a conversation with your patient about, okay, so this is going to be, you know, four weeks till the next appointment. What do you see happening in your life in the next four weeks? Do we think that um, you are going to have intercourse in the next four weeks and and we're going to need to make sure that we send something like emergency birth control? Because I can let the next provider know that and see if that can be sent ahead of time. Do you think that you are going to be around and are going to be able to come to that appointment? Or do we actually think that it's going to be longer than that? Because then Maybe we can have some of those conversations. Here are some websites where we can, well, actually, no, if I don't believe in it, I wouldn't say that, would I? <laughs> but but I think that that is something that perhaps having ready beforehand, so if you don't literally don't want to have the conversation, to give that list of websites so that the patient can study the information themselves and kind of start making some of those decisions and be informed before they go. So I think a lot of it also has to do with just education, right? Just education around how can we make sure that you're safe, even if you don't actually have the pill itself or the IUD or whatever it is that you're doing. And especially if you happen to be a provider who doesn't believe in in these additional forms of birth control. So then it's upon you to then be able to explain things like uh, natural uh, family planning, but that is something that you should be able to discuss. And so then discuss so that at least your patient is, is having that information before they go and seek the other care that they need. I don't think it's okay to just say, I can't do this. Here's this other person, go fend for yourself. I think it's, I can't do this, but let me really find out what I can do for you 
so that then in the interim, there is some kind of coverage or, or whatever it is. So because I think otherwise, it's just handing off a, a person to another. And that's also not okay. And keeping that Hippocratic oath in mind, that's not you're not actually caring for that patient. So I think those are some things that at the, at the very minimum can be done. Do you have any suggested websites if that providers could send patients to about contraception, fam- natural family planning, kind of those topics you mentioned? More so for the for the different actually, yeah. So bedsider.org, definitely one that I know that we use a lot. And RAP, which is the Reproductive Access Project. So reproductivehealthaccess.org. So that uh, is one that has different languages. So that's another reason that I would send somebody there, Betsider, I think in English and Spanish, but I'm not sure about other languages, whereas RAP does. Uh, those are kind of two of the ones that I go to uh, more frequently, and definitely anyone can, can access. Thanks. And I think even in just saying that, I'm reminded that this entire discussion we're having to really, really, really keep in mind language for our patients. So not only the language that we use as in the the various words that we use, but the actual language they speak. And I think a huge piece that is missing in reproductive health in the U.S. ends up being around language. And so we'll spend so much time developing resources or discussing this and that around, you know, how should we talk to patients, but then that doesn't always translate (laughs) into other settings and other languages. And inevitably, some of the people who get the worst care, period, in health, and absolutely in reproductive health, are people who are monolingual speakers. And I think that that is another, another sort of call to action, that if you don't have that language knowledge, please, please, please make sure that you have an interpreter service, something, so that you're able to care for your patients. Yeah, those are all great follow-on points. I'm glad that we were able to have this really robust conversation and talk about both sides and how do we manage. So that was, thank you very much. So I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and commitment in advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you would like to add before we end today? I mean, I think number one is just thank you for opening the space and having this conversation. I think that it is an important one to have. And and again, in, in such a divisive world in which we find ourselves, this is a conversation that's important because we can sort of bring worlds together. And uh, to our listeners, I would say, whether you sort of agree or disagree with some of the things that were said here today, at the base is again, why are we in medicine? And we're in medicine to care for others and to, to make sure that there is safe, equitable care. And I think that is what, for lack of better words, trumps everything. And so when decision-making happens and and we sort of have to decide whether to do one thing or another, really stepping back and, and not making it about ourselves, but making it about the person who's in front of us, I think that that is especially in line with spiritual teachings of any religion that it, that it is about the other and not ourselves. And so that would be, I guess, the, the last thing I would remind our listeners. Those are beautiful last words. Yeah. And, and it's funny that you mentioned that because just when we talked with Dr. Via Vicencio, she had mentioned the same thing that it's about, is this my thing or their thing? And really making sure that we recognize what's ours and what are we bringing to the table versus what is our patient 
bringing to the table. So interesting connection between our last podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you planned it that way. (laughs) It's like we planned it, but we never do. (laughs) Well, again, thank you both. Yes, thank you. you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. Mm-hmm.